the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, some interesting religious demographical research has come out. We're going to discuss that. And then we're joined by professor and author D.A. Horton to talk about what Christians should know about critical race theory. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, happy Thursday. Welcome to the Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon at Christianity Today. Uh, I saw this, some more religious demographic research came oh, out. This stuff is okay. always fascinating to me when demographical research comes out. And it's simply, uh, uh, the headline reads this. Mainline Protestants are still declining, but that's not good news for evangelicals. And hmm. since both traditions are losing out to the unaffiliated, it said the ranks of religiously unaffiliated, also those called nuns, right? N-O-N-E-S's have grown from about 5% in the early 1970s to at least 30% in 2020. Uh, mainline Protestants is showing a significant wow. decline, but so are uh, less precipitously, but still showing a decline uh, are the non-denominational, the evangelical okay. churches wow. are also showing a decline. So really, and we've talked about this before, but I think with this new research, it's worth circling back to uh, this idea of um, the ri- the thing that's rising most by 25% since the 1970s are the nuns hmm. the uh those who say i am not affiliated at all and so aubrey i guess i would just start there does that continue to surprise you and what do you think's going on with all of this so you know i've heard it said that some of this is actually can be seen positively because it means that people who identified as a Christian in the past uh, may have just been doing so very culturally because, you know, decades ago, everyone was a quote unquote Christian. Right. And so right. on this type of survey, they would have checked. Yes, I'm a Christian or yes, I go to church because culturally that was very acceptable. Many and just like understood that you went to church. Um, and so I've heard it said that some of this is showing that um, people are actually uh, having less of a cultural Christianity and more of a serious Christianity. And it gives us as people who want to share the gospel a better opportunity to get mm-hmm. to the heart of what real Christianity is. Um, okay, so that's one perspective. Like, this is a good thing. Now we know who the real Christians are and who they aren't. And we can actually go after people in Jesus name with love, you know. I think um, it is uh, the other side of the coin is certainly I don't know that I would say it's surprising in this day and age, but it certainly feels a little disheartening. Like, wow, are are evangelicals about to disappear? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. like in my lifetime, will it be like a rare thing? Will you be a minority to be an evangelical? And I don't know that that's horrible, but it's certainly uh, I don't certainly something to think about. 
Yeah, yeah. And it, it, I, those of you in mainline congregations, that also seems to be one. That drop has been precipitous. Yeah. Uh, while, while the evangelical drop has been a little bit more gradual. Uh, they do point out in the 70s and 80s that the numbers in the mainline churches well outdistance those in evangelical churches. Um, it says between 20, 2000 and 2018, the decline among evangelicals has been relatively modest, about two percentage points. Okay. The main line has three times as fast during the same period, dropping from 16 percent in 2000 to just over 10 percent wow. in 2018. So it is interesting. Uh, but I do think the main question becomes, what do we do with this information? You yeah. and I are both pastors right. in evangelical churches. You, you touched on a little bit before that it gives you a little bit of a better understanding of the landscape. But as pastors in evangelical churches, it, it, it's helpful to go, why is this happening? But I think the real helpful question is to go kind of, so what? Like, what do we do with this information? So what do you do with this kind of information as you read it? Yeah, I mean, I think to me it says, okay, churches, are we, we're missing the mark somehow, right? We're we're somehow not making disciples the way that we ought to be. We're somehow not... I don't even know if it's about relevance, but are people actually encountering God and the spirit of God and God's love in such a way that they're compelled by it? Like we've talked about Scott Sauls before in the show who asked the question, like, is the church beautiful anymore? And so I think ultimately that's what it makes me ask as a pastor and a church planter. Like, how can we create a more beautiful church, uh, church body, church people so that, um, People are interested, right? Mm. People are interested in a life of Christ, a life with Christ. Because I, I think part of this, and I'm making guesses here, but because we have been so aligned with politics and we've been so aligned with things we're against, right? Rather than the things we're for, then the culture's turned off by that right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I think this is a wake up call for the church. It continues to be a wake up call uh, that says, um, let's get back to what the church is supposed to be about and, yeah, or, yeah. or not get back like we've completely left, but let's refocus on what the church is to be about. We're to be about, uh, building one another up, right? Loving one another, helping each, spurring each other on to love and good deeds, and then going out and loving our neighbors, right? Loving God with all that we have and loving our neighbors, going out and making disciples. Cause I do think you make a good point that this sort of demographical research allows us to get a lay of the land and go, okay, we're kind of losing the cultural Christianity and that might be okay. Like the the lack of cultural Christianity might lead towards more honest conversations of people going, I used to try that, but I'm not a Christian anymore, or uh, I've got no interest in this like this. It's not the worst thing in the world to have greater definition uh, to what it looks like the cultural church landscape is like right now. Because like you said, it does help us go, okay, there's work to be done. We mm-hmm. can, uh, we need to look at ourselves and go, what are we living for? What are we doing? But then it also allows us to look around to our neighbors, to other people in our, in our communities and go, okay, it's time to get out there sharing the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, because we still believe, un- you know, we're not defined by uh, demographical research. We're defined by a hope in Jesus. And, and that hope doesn't end, right? So yeah, we can still yeah. kind of go out and be encouraged. Yeah, that's good. That's good. The last thing this article says is the entire nature of church growth will need to shift in the future and churches need to be ready to face a religious landscape they have never seen before. And I think mm. that's a good word because sometimes we can sort of 
uh, our defenses go up and we're like, no, the culture's changing. It's us against them. And we can sort of take that posture. I think a better posture is to be curious, to do research, to learn about the landscape, and then to really create churches, that missional churches, as we have done throughout history as Christians, that meet the needs of the landscape as it is so that the gospel continues to go forward. And you're right, it will, because our hope is in Jesus Christ and he never fails. Absolutely. That's a good word. Well, coming up next, it's a difficult topic. So we said, let's get somebody smart to get on and talk about it. Yes, exactly. We're going to talk to professor and author D.A. Horton as we ask the question, what Christians should know about critical race theory? We hear a lot about critical race theory these days in the news, and we want to ask a professor and an author, what should we as Christians do with it? We're going to have that conversation next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by our next guest here. He is D.A. Horton. D.A. is the Program Director of Intercultural Studies and Assistant Professor at California Baptist University. Also author of the book, Intentional Kingdom Ethnicity in a Divided World. D.A., we're so grateful for you joining us. How are you doing today? I'm blessed. It's a privilege to be here. I'm grateful and thankful. So thank you for the opportunity. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. We're grateful for you taking the time. DA, before we jump into everything we want to talk to you about, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? Sure. Yeah. Um, Well, currently I am blessed to just have celebrated my 18th year of marriage to my best friend. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, So that's first and foremost. Um, in addition to that, we're blessed with three children. Uh, Isabel, our oldest, is about to go into her senior year in high school. Our middle daughter, Lola, is going into eighth grade. And our son, uh, we call him Deuce. He's named after me. And um, he's going into second grade. So, uh, yeah. And in addition to that, I serve as a full-time assistant professor at California Baptist University in Riverside, California. I also oversee the intercultural studies uh, program. And we have three different majors in that program. And I've been telling people that, hey, you know, uh, if you've enjoyed my speaking, teaching at events or conferences, man, why don't you just join me and my colleagues for the next four years and let's grow in the Mm -hmm. Lord together. Um, And then in addition to that, I serve as an associate teaching pastor at the Grove Community Church here in Riverside as well. Oh, that's awesome. DA, I love hearing all the things that you're doing. Um, so I was able to listen to your uh, podcast conversation at the Quick to Listen podcast uh, with Christianity Today, and you talked about critical race theory, what Christians need to know. Now, we all know CRT <laughs> is uh, it's a big conversation online, certainly, and lots of people feel differently about CRT, but I think uh, most of it is because people don't actually understand what critical race theory is. And I love that you actually broke it down for us and then gave Christians ways to think about it. And so that's kind of what we wanted to have you do, really. If you could just, for the lay people out here, yeah. could you explain to us what CRT is? And then, uh, this is a two-part question, perhaps, give us some tips. Like, how can Christians think critically about critical race theory? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, I think it's very important for everyone to understand critical race theory was developed out of something known as critical legal studies. Now, first, the idea behind the word critical, uh, literally, it means a non-traditional approach. So whatever is the majority perspective, a critical analysis basically says, well, is the majority perspective 
true? And is it in alignment with historical fact? And so legal scholars began to get frustrated with the lack and the slowness of the implementation of gains, if you will, uh, in, in, in education, in housing, in economics in America as it relates to uh, those of African descent, Latinos, people of Asian descent, and then looking at the reality of what is slowing up the implementation of these legislative changes. For example, Brown versus Board of Education. Um, we know that historically to be the court case in the Supreme Court ruling that produced integration in our public school system. However, uh, just because that decision was handed down did not mean that schools automatically responded immediately for mm. the reality of integration. So critical legal studies said, what is slowing down this progress from happening? And so when you understand critical race theory, number one, you have to understand it is not a global universal analysis. People are uh, creating it to be a worldview, which I think is an overstep. Now, the thing that I want people to understand is that Often when people uh, are the founders of a, a new ideology, a new perspective, uh, a unique way of viewing something, uh, you know, they can have a, a strong grounding in their perspective and they have no control over how people take their work and then run with it and maybe even radicalize it in the next generation. I mean, this is exactly what hmm. Solomon talks about in the book of Ecclesiastes, is that one person labors their entire life, and then when they pass away, the oncoming generation blows it frivolously, and they have no control over that. And so wow. I think some of that has happened with some people who are uh, critical race theorists. And so often people are charging Christians within Christianity that you're, you're a critical race theorist. And it's like, well, no, I mean, in the essence of the definition of critical race theory, if you're not a legal scholar who is engaged in the judicial arguing process of what it looks like for rulings and implementation of those rulings, you're not a critical race theorist. You can take the, hmm. the analysis of critical race theory and apply it in different areas. And so even though my discipline and my calling where the Lord has me serving as a missionary is in the world of education, um, there are educators who have looked at the principles of critical race theory and they have applied it in order to assess the education system in the United States of America. And so for our listeners, I think it would be fair to basically say, I have engaged the primary voices, that means the uh, constructors, the architects of critical race theory, the legal scholars who came together and began to share their analyses of uh, the systems in America policy, uh, the reality of American society as it relates to the issue of racism. And the themes that I've identified is oversimplified. Number one, uh, the idea and the concept of race is something that is man-made. And hmm. this construction is something that we see is historically true in the colonizing of the Western Hemisphere from European monarchies, Spain and Portugal, in the Caribbean, Mesoamerica, and South America, but then also from the English, the French, and others as it relates to North America, the United States, and Canada. And the idea of race is something that was imposed on people groups Especially in America, you have historians like David Rodiger, who's not a critical race theorist. He's a historian. And he communicated the reality of this term white that is so normative in our American society. 
Uh, you would be very foolish and living in denial if you deny the fact that when you fill out a U.S. census, when you uh, fill out maybe uh, different types of forms for health care and things that yeah. that nature, and they ask you to identify what race you are. Uh, those things have been created by humans. When we look at scripture, we don't see this structure of race. What we see is the beauty of ethnicity that God tells us hmm. flows derivatively from one common set of parents, and that is Adam and hmm. Eve. That's what we read in Genesis 3.20, Eve is the mother of all living. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Paul at the Areopagus is telling them that from one man, the bloodline of the nations, and the Greek word for nations is better translated into English, ethnicities. So hmm. ethnicity is a God-given gift. And so going back to the term white uh, in the United States of America, that term picked up traction in, in our history because people exchanged their ethnic identity that was God-given for the concept of white that is man-made. Wow. Because wow. it, it secured housing, it secured jobs, it secured education. And so people who used to be identified by their ethnic background, uh, now they are affiliated with the term white. And so that constructed an opposing perspective, which by default is black. And so that mm. created something known as the black-white binary, where the quote-unquote mm. conversation on race has been predominant within this black-white binary. And so wow. when, when you see those realities, we, we would say, yeah, that's something that we can't get away from in American society. And so the other idea of critical race theory is that racism is something that is permanent in American society because it is in the founding documents implicitly, mm. but explicitly within the uh, framework of life rhythm in society in the United States from early days on. In addition yeah, to that, yeah. critical race theory says that the perspective of those who are marginalized need to be heard to become more mm. normative because their voices have been marginalized. Critical race theory also calls out the idea of color blindedness, saying mm. that this is not being truthful because when you do see somebody, you do not unsee their melanin. You do not unsee yeah, the reality yeah. of their physical makeup. But at the yeah. same time, this idea of colorblind, legally, critical race theorists argue that the law in America historically has not been um, neutral when it comes to mm. race, this concept yeah. of race. It hasn't. And if it was structured and built upon this man-made concept of race, it could never be uh, colorless or colorblind or neutral, yeah. if you will. And the last thing that critical race theorists argue is that it seems like that when progress in the conversation of race is made, it is only when it benefits those who are, quote unquote, white. Mm. And so even the Brown versus Board of Education, one of the architects, the I would say the central architect of critical race theory, who's Derek Bell, uh, what he communicated is that the Brown versus Board of Education was not necessarily for the pro-integration for uh, those of African descent and those who are Latino in America, but rather it was because of the communist propaganda in the other countries that were basically saying, how can y'all come over here and think that you are a superior uh, nation than everybody else just because, you know, Hitler and Nazism, but everything that he was doing as far as philosophy and ideology is ha has been happening in your country this entire time. So hmm. people were promoting that propaganda throughout something I call the global South or majority world, but uh, the, the more known term is the third world. 
Um, so they would use that propaganda against America. So it was kind of like, okay, we better make these legislative changes so that we can correct the mm-hmm. propaganda that's coming out of the second world, which is the communist world. So that's kind of like a big picture of critical race theory. DA, that is so helpful. Thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. You talked about um, race not being a biblical concept. I'm going to put words in your mouth, but ethnicity being a biblical concept. Why does that matter? And why especially does that matter to the Christ follower and to the church? Yeah, thank you for uh, even framing the question that way. Um, The reason that I just am adamant to help people understand that it matters is that number one, uh, so much gets lost in the, the dialogue regarding critical race theory, especially from a Christian perspective. And I think one of the things we have to understand is that we are not compromising our faith. We are not saying the gospel is not enough or that scripture is insufficient when we are honest enough to affirm truth claims from the non-believing world when they are actually true. And at the same time, that doesn't mean that we will follow them to their conclusions all the time, especially when they step out of bounds from the framework of Scripture. The reason that I believe that starting with the conversation regarding ethnicity is something that is seen in Scripture is that, number one, we see that God has created every human in his image. Adam and Eve are humanity's first parents. At the same time, Genesis 3 shows us that every human equally, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, gender, or social class, we all equally inherited this fallen nature from our first father, Adam. Scripture does not label us by racial categories used today. Rather, we see in the scripture it's normal for ethnicity, language, and geographic proximity to be identifiers for people. So scripture does proclaim the fact that we are all the same kind as humanity. So technically, there is one race, the human race, but often Mm. that phrase is used to catapult a misnomer known as color blindedness. And so in the United States of America, in my limited engagement with people over the past 20 years uh, regarding conversations about race and ethnicity, you know, I, I, I keep coming up to this, this reality that we in America, from my perspective, do not know how to handle the conversation of ethnicity because we often reduce it to skin color. And mm. that's not true. And so the Bible never says God is colorblind. Because inside the human race, which is one, exists a beautiful, gorgeous array of ethnicities that God created out of his genius for his glory. And when Mm. you even take into consideration the beauty of the gospel, the job description known as the Great Commission that Jesus has given every follower in in that job description is the language pantata ethne in the Greek, which translates into into English that we are to make disciples of every ethnicity. And so often when when I frame it that way, people will push back and say, well, Galatians 3.28 says, you know, um, there is no Greek nor Jew. And I'm like, okay, if we're going to be consistent, then then take a three-thirds interpretation of that passage, not a one-third interpretation. Right. what I'm encountering. And so uh, the reason I want people to understand that is because an honest interpretation of Galatians 3.28 affirms the ethnicity that God has given every human being. And that ethnic affirmation is a guardrail to keep Mm -hmm. us from the two polemic responses. Either A, we idolize our ethnicity, which is ethnocentrism, and that's a sin, or B, Mm -hmm. we ignore ethnicity, which is ignoring a beautiful gift that God has given us. So affirming ethnicity is the middle of the road approach. Affirming somebody's ethnicity does not 
usurp their identity in Christ. Instead, it's a truthful acknowledging of a God-given attribute that he has given every single one of us. And the amazing thing about ethnicity, it's present in the eternal state. When we read Revelation chapter 21, verses 24 through 26, we see the reality of the ethnicity God has elected us to have is still present in the city of God. In addition to that, there are people of prominence from the different ethnicities who have embraced Christ and they are a part of his kingdom people. They are bringing cultural creations of grace into the city of God. So that means our ethnicity and the cultural expressions therein that give God honor and glory they will be with us present in the eternal state. And so that's where I have to help people understand. If you're going to say that you don't see ethnicity, okay, fine. Then you don't see gender and you don't see social class either. And if that's the case, then you should have nothing to say about the ideas of gender fluidity. You should have Mm -hmm. nothing to say about biblical masculinity, biblical femininity. You should have nothing to say about financial stewardship. You should have no building funds. We should never talk about employment ethics or a strong work ethic, if that's the case. But since that's not the case, then let's do well and let's affirm ethnicity. Let's stop believing the lie of color blindedness. And the last thing I want to say is even the phrase, well, I'm a Christian before I'm Mexican. I'm a Christian before I'm this. That's that to me, that's a false dichotomy because Mm. when I, when I look at the scriptures and I look at the names that are written in the Lamb's book of life, based on uh, Revelation 13, 8, based on Revelation 17, 8, what I see is uh, the, the verb written is in the perfect tense passive voice, which means God is the one who did the writing in eternity past. And mm. the reality of that means that he already elected our ethnicities before we were born. Mm. And if our ethnicity is part of his process of uh, who we are, and he elected us to be what we are, and it's present in the eternal state, there is no such thing as I'm a Christian before I'm this. No. I'm a Christian, which means God saved the whole of who I am, including mm. my ethnicity. I don't have to mm. parse out my Christian faith from my ethnicity. And, and that is, to me, where we are missing it so badly in America. Because yeah. when I start saying these things, that's when people start saying, oh, that's critical race theory. That's Marxism. That's socialism. <laughs> I said, no, that's exegetical reality in Scripture. Wow. So wow. let's have more conversation on that. Oh, D.A., I wish we had hours to pick your brain because I feel like there's so many great questions to ask you. But I do want to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners about your book, Intentional Kingdom Ethnicity in a Divided World. Can you um, briefly tell us what that book is about? Yeah, basically, I mean, if you if you just look at the color, it's a fingerprint and the fingerprint has multiple colors in it. My goal in this book is to arm Christians with a greater understanding of God's story and how ethnicity is not parsed out. Uh, I give us practical ways that we can move forward in this conversation about race and ethnicity, specifically in Protestantism in America, and how we can find tangible, practical ways to do everything that I've communicated thus far. Affirm Mm -hmm. ethnicity, restore dignity to people groups who have had it stripped from them, that we would continue to be faithful and committed to the gospel, to the word of God, to our local churches, and that every Christian would see themselves as a missionary, living in a career field that is a mission field and them representing God is what we need in all the spaces of influence in society in America. Now, the goal is not some type of a utopia. That's never going to happen before the coming of Christ. But the goal is gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration that I believe was truly witnessed and evidenced 
by our church fathers and mothers in the first few mm-hmm. centuries of Christianity. And so what I'm trying to call us back to is know who we are as the people of God. Know who we are in our local churches, that it is through our words and our actions that we reveal snapshots of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. So that's what the book is communicating. It's getting us out of the black-white binary, and it's affirming the multiple ethnic heritages of the kingdom of God that are present here in America already. Awesome. Again, that book is called Intentional Kingdom Ethnicity in a Divided World. You can learn more about DA at dahorton.com. Also follow him on Twitter at DA underscore Horton. That is DA underscore Horton. DA, this has been phenomenal. Would love to have you on again sometime. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Yeah, my joy. Anytime. I appreciate it. God bless y'all. You as well. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon. Uh, with it being summer, I'm about to leave town and you're about to go to school. So uh, next <laughs> week. School. Yeah, next yeah, week, we're going to have some fun. We're going to have uh, some best of shows as I am getting some rest and relaxation. And you're going to grad school. What are you going to grad school for? feels like you're too old for grad school. Oh, I'm too old for grad school, Brian. You're right. I am finishing up my master's program this summer. My last two classes in my master's degree, I'm getting my degree in evangelism and leadership. And it's my last two classes. So this is huge for me. So are both classes next week, like in the next week to 10 days, they'll be done? Yeah, they're in the next, uh, it's like a week and a half of, and and weekends of um, intensive classes. And then we're somewhat done. We still have some post coursework and we have a big final exam in October, but at least like class time will be done. So this has been a four-year program. So this feels monumental. Thank you. Thank you. My husband is going to be glad. There would be irony if you failed an exam on evangelism. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> it would be that terrible. Would be, uh, and now <laughs> you have you you have discussed go, going on further uh, in your studies, have you not? I have. I have discussed it. I would like to get my doctorate. Um, I think the question for me, for my family, for my marriage is when is the right time to do that? Is there a right time to do that? Or I have, mama I have an opinion on break? that. <laughs> you do. What's I have an opinion? opinion that I will hold. I will hold that to myself. Oh, okay. Right? I've, I appreciate that. Here's the hard thing. My husband right now is applying for his PhD. And so I'm like, well, That's if you're awesome. going, I'm going. <laughs> But then we there, also have we have kids we got to send to college here pretty soon. So I don't yeah, I don't know what's going to happen there. I would love to go back 20 years, 21 years or so into college and have someone tell me in the future, Kevin Sampson's going to get his Ph.D. <laughs> I know. That, actually, he has a lot of friends that are like, you, you're going to. Oh, a lot of people gosh. don't know that Kevin already has two master's degrees. Like he's quite academic, but not a lot of people know that because he's such a goofball. You know, that's right. Triathlons. Yeah. And master's degrees yep. and running churches okay he should yep. have a radio show i know he should have a radio show but what we're are we better talking Ours about is better <laughs> that's a good point that's a good point all right two articles jumped out to me for similar reasons as i was kind of just perusing the news this week uh just two headlines here first amazon workers petition and two quit over uh, what is being called an anti-lgbtq book sales the company's oh. latest move shows what employees say is a reversal of Amazon's earlier policies. It has to do with a book called by Abigail Schreier, 
called Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. And mm. so uh, she explores in the book what they say are is the trans epidemic. And, and what the, her critics are saying is that she's labeling all transgender people to be uh, to having mental health issues. And she's saying, no, I don't say that at all. I'm just uh, exploring the different conversations here, basically, yeah, yeah. is how this goes. It's a very popular book, but some Amazon workers are saying, I'm going to quit my job at Amazon if we still carry this book. Second story is this. New York Democrats accuse Chick-fil-A of discrimination, want to ban it from rest stops. So on the New York State Thruway, the New York State uh, Thruway Authority is wanting to add Chick-fil-A restaurants uh, all across uh, the New York State Thruway. If you've ever driven on the New York State Thruway, there's just all these rest areas. I remember when I was a kid, we would drive that road and they were all Roy Rogers restaurants, right? (laughs) Right, right. Well, now they're wanting to put Chick-fil-A restaurants throughout and uh, Democrats in the New York House of uh, Representatives are saying no. Legislators in New York House are saying no because Chick-fil-A, quote, through their charitable wing of its business, has a history of donating millions of dollars to organizations that are discriminatory and anti-LGBTQ organizations. Chick-fil-A has come back and A, they've stopped giving to two organizations they gave to before. And B, they've said that's not our policy, right? We are not anti-LGBTQ. But these uh, congressmen, I guess, in New York are going, nope, that's not good enough. We want to shut you down. And so, Mm -hmm. Aubrey, I think both of these start to paint a picture of something that I think is increasingly going to be the landscape going forward. That to hold what many of us would call biblical views, but other people would call – not biblical views, but maybe traditional views, traditional orthodox, however you want to label them uh, about sexuality and marriage and other things, I think are going to increasingly face pressure societally uh, like is happening here at Amazon, like is happening with Chick-fil-A. And I think it would behoove us as Christians and as the church to not only accept that, but to consider what do we do going forward? So what do you mm-hmm. think about these stores? You know, I, I the Amazon one is a little bit disturbing to me because I don't think that Amazon should be in the business of uh, like they should be neutral as far as what they sell online. And maybe that's naive of me. But um, I I if if Amazon starts policing some books, but not others like that. Those policies are going to get crazy ridiculous. And part of me says that as an author, right? Like suddenly you can't sell a book on Amazon anymore. Well, that takes away a lot of your sales. But I also think there has to be like, uh, you know, okay, I'm going to reverse it for a second. A few years ago, there were lots of Christians up in arms about Starbucks. We don't go to Starbucks because Starbucks is pro-LGBTQ. So therefore, all right. Christians should not go to Starbucks. And I always thought that was so ridiculous because if you start that frame of mind, then you can't drive on the road because you don't know if the person who planned the highway or the construction <laughs> worker yeah, worked yeah. on is an LGBTQ ally. You know what I mean? Like, And so... So I, I think the reverse has to be true as well. Like we can't start just again, this cancel culture stuff, canceling everything that we disagree with. There has to be a place for discourse, debate, disagreement, uh, speech, free speech, frankly, you know, and it, 
of course I'm a Christian. So I come at it from a Christian perspective. So it does bother me that like this type of content specifically seems like it's being targeted. Not, I guess not by Amazon, but by these employees that left. Um, But I, I, I don't know. I don't like it. (laughs) That's maybe not the most intelligent thing to say, but I don't, I don't like this, this version of cancel culture. And then the chick, the Chick-fil-A thing. I mean, they they changed their policies. They started donating to other things. So I don't know what what else do you want. You're just going right. to shut the whole organization down. Uh, that's think, not I a free. That's not up, a free market. Anyway, go ahead. I think you bring up a great point about uh, this is a uh, dangerous, slippery slope to just start. And obviously, private organizations can do whatever they want. I guess that's true. Uh, yeah, but it is a slippery slope that says. Well, I mean, the state of New York is not a private organization. Yeah. but there it is a slippery slope to say we don't agree with you, so therefore we're not going to at all engage you. Right. But I think you make an important point. Christians need to advocate for that and live by that as and well. Live by it. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. We right. Need to, if we're going to have the free access to ideas and this and that, that that cuts both ways. And I think that's healthy for us as Christians and as a society. I think we need to be okay with that. So interesting stories. We'll see where they play out. Well, coming up next, Aubrey wants to talk about something called Christian tourism. All right. We're going to have that conversation. <laughs> You're going to help do me that. out here, Brian. Exactly. We're going to do that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're asking, when are burdens necessary? Then we're joined by Hannah Gronowski Barnett, author, speaker, and CEO of Generation Distinct. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Thursday afternoon. I'm Aubrey Sampson alongside my host, Brian Fromm, and we're happy to have you Weekend is coming. We're so excited. Uh, And we have unique weekends coming up. Brian, you're headed out of town, right? I am. It's it's like combo, like it's like a special last baseball tournament for my son's team, but then also a vacation going to Florida because, you know, everybody Uh, goes. Everybody goes to Florida in the middle of July. I mean, it's just a beautiful <laughs> place to be. No, we're my in-laws have given us like some points to like a resort, so there'll be lots of pool oh, time. And, so I'm Love super it. excited. So not just the weekend, I'm gone through until next weekend. So I'm super excited for that. Oh, that's going to be so fantastic. And as you said before on the show, I'm headed to grad school, so we are going to have some best of shows for you coming up. Our favorite guests, our favorite funny moments. It's going to be a great week here on The Common Good, even without us, even while we're, we'll be here in spirit and in voice. Okay, Brian, friend of the show, Jen Pollock-Michelle, she um, writes over at her blog, and which is called Postscript, and she uh, published something, I guess it's just been a few days ago. She talks about burdens, and mm. when you're bent beneath your burdens and she talks about how you know life isn't always a crisis but sometimes it's a perpetual burden the dishwasher has to be unloaded again your people are getting hungry again monday morning is happening again and uh, one of the things that she ends up talking about is we want to live in a world like Willy Wonka's <laughs> chocolate factory where we get benefits, but we don't actually have burdens. But she says we can't have this 
type of world if we want to follow in the way of Jesus. Burdens are necessary, Jen says, and burdens are also hard. We'll read more of the article here in just a minute. But what do you think about that? Are burdens necessary, Brian? Oh, I do think so. I think we learn a lot from them. We grow. We grow in our faith, right? Our reliance on God. We also grow in our understanding that I can't control everything, right? What are the things that often burden us is when things seem out of control. So, yes, it's like the full um, – we get burdened when our when our to-do list is too long. She talked about the dishwasher, mowing the lawn, all this kind of stuff. But also mm-hmm. just when I, I feel more burdened when I look at my own life or my family's life or the church and I'm like, I can't change that or I there, this yeah. is too big for me uh, and and what does that do for us that reminds us of how small we are how big God is and and mm-hmm. it drives us to our knees it drives us to prayer like only God can handle this if not then I'm kind of done I kind of can't do this I'm this weight on <laughs> right. my shoulder is <laughs> right. too much and she talks out of the new living translation of Psalm 145 14 I hadn't thought of this before she says in the New Living Translation, it says, the Lord lifts those bent beneath their loads. Uh, she says, if you're an ESV reader, you might recognize it as the Lord raises up all who are uh, bowed down. And she makes this point in this verse. She's struck by the action of God. He doesn't lift the burdens from the backs of those bent low. He instead lifts the people carrying the loads. I never noticed that before. Like, wow. It doesn't say he's lifting the burdens off of their backs. Wow. It says he lifts those bent beneath their loads. I think that's really important. I think that's a really important point she makes there because it's not a lot of us just. God, you know, God's action in our life needs to be the removal of all of my burdens. That's not the mm. promise. The promise is his presence, his lifting us up, his, uh, mm. yeah, I almost said support. That's too small a word. But the fact that God is there, I think, yeah, this is an important point because I think a lot of us are burdened right now. Definitely. She also goes on to say that we have to keep at the daily tedium of loving our roommates, parenting our children, cleaning our apartments, being a good neighbor, nurturing our spiritual lives. But when all of that feels like a burden, guess what happens? God lifts you up. Like you just said, Brian, he pours out his own life into you, gives you the energy for the work of love. Then she quotes the prophet Isaiah, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I do think that that's such a good word, such a good reminder for all of us that we have burdens we are carrying, period. And we will have burdens we are carrying. Some days are going to feel heavier than others, but it is God who gives us strength to keep going. Um, Otherwise, like you said, we might just kind of lose our minds and not be able to. (laughs) be able to keep doing it without the Lord. All right. There was another article, Brian, that's a little bit related that I thought was also an interesting one to talk about. This is from propelwomen.org. Dr. Melody Williams says, say no to overextending yourself. So Mm. she's almost saying, don't add your own burden. Don't add the burdens. Right? Life is burdensome enough. Why are you going to add more? And she she starts by quoting... um, the little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And she uh, said that for a long time, she happily chugged along like that. I think I can like doing everything that came her way, but she barely gave herself a moment to slow down, Mm. catch her breath, truly check in with her loved ones. And then she got really ill because she was just like running, 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 running constantly. She had said yes to two 
much. So this is an interesting take because this is when we like add burdens that we don't necessarily need to. Right. Are you um are you good at this, Brian, at saying no or do you say yes to everything? Like how do you kind of operate? Oh, that's a great question. I think I am okay at saying no. Um you know what I have a hard time saying no is when people are like, hey, can I meet with you? Because it's like, oh, they must either need me or yeah, I don't want to let them down. Yeah. Um, but I do. She makes a really interesting point here because there's uh, something our old, my old co-host here, Ian, our old friend here, uh, he used to say all the time that really stuck with me is that we are not human doings. We're human beings. Mm, and that's good. and I think so many of us, we get a lot of the overextension we do in our life is is born out of an ideal that the more that I do, the more accomplished I am, the more that I the more things that I can do, whether for God or so that other people can see me, the more then I'm of greater value. And, totally. and that keeps us from resting. That keeps us from Sabbath. It keeps us from being content. Uh, and I think that's what she's getting at. I think uh, we often overextend ourselves out of a really unhealthy place. Sometimes it's just busyness, right? I have to get this done. I got to get all this yeah. stuff done. Yeah. But I do think a lot of times it's it's more sinister than that. It's this, gosh, if I'm not busy, then what does that say mm-hmm. about me as a person? And then we just go and go and go and you end up like she does. You end up sick going, okay, actually, I do need to take kind of these rhythms more seriously. Yeah, I do think that's really interesting, Brian, that we ought to, because sometimes I think we go, oh, I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy. But we don't pause to ask why. And so I do think that's really an insightful thought to to look at your busyness and say, okay, what is propelling me onward right now? Like, why, why do I feel like I have to say yes to everything? Or why am I constantly busy? What either what am I avoiding? Or what am I trying to earn? What am I trying to accomplish? Like, am I after someone's approval? Most likely, is it God's like, you know, and the reality is, is that we already have God's approval. We already have Mm -hmm. his acceptance in and through Jesus Christ. And so because of that, we really don't have to hustle. We really don't have to run around like, you know, chickens with our head cut off. We can rest. One of the things that um, this author says, Dr. Melody Williams, similar to what Jen Pollock Michelle said is with Christ, we are empowered to do what's best for us. We have to be deliberate, deliberate about conserving our energy and preserving our time. Let's all take a lesson. She's talking about Mary and Martha. Let's take a lesson from Mary. Be intentional about our no and choose the good part. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I think that's an encouraging word for all of us, especially when life does feel so burdensome. Let's choose our best yeses and make sure that's time where we're being fueled by the Lord as only he can refuel us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, coming up, we're going to be joined by one of my friends, uh, Hannah Granowski Barnett. She is the founder of Generation Distinct. She is an author and a speaker. She is passionate about empowering young adults to discover the wrongs that they were born to make right. And she's one of the speakers at the Lyft 2021 conference. And so we are excited to be joined by her to talk about that. So stick around. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Thursday afternoon. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are very excited because we have a special guest with us. 
This month, we've been telling you all about AM1160's Lift 2021 virtual conference. It's on the topic of mental health and wellness for pastors and church leaders. It's presented by Hopeful Beginnings. And each week in July, we've been releasing a new virtual presentation centered around an aspect of this topic. If you've missed any of them, you can find them at 1160hope.com slash lift. We're thankful to the supporters who made this possible. That's Lydia Home, My Pillow, and Moody Theological Seminary. And like I said, we have a special guest, one of the speakers for the Lyft Conference. Today's message actually is here with us. Her name is Hannah Granowski Barnett. You may recognize her because she's been on the show before. She's actually a dear, dear friend of mine. She's also an author, speaker, and CEO of Generation Distinct. Hannah, we're so excited to have you with us to tell us more about your ministry and your message for Lyft 2021. Thanks so much. I, I'm so glad to be back. I feel like I'm really part of the common good family right now. <laughs> you are. You are. I'm just going to claim that. There you go. Well, you've actually co-hosted on multiple occasions. So that makes you family. Like you there are you there. Go. There you go. There you go. Well, Hannah, we're <laughs> excited for you to share at Lyft. Uh, and we wanted to just have you on just to tell us, uh, what, give us a brief overview. What is it that your message is going to be about at this Lyft conference? Sure. You know, I have a lot of conversations because of my role um, as a leader who really impacts kind of next generation. Like we're our organization specifically targets next generation leaders, as well as the fact that I am a 26 year old leader myself, right? And so I have a lot of leaders and pastors who will reach out to me and say, Hey, how do we engage the next generation into our church or into our ministry? And the conversation is usually coming from a place of um, really those, those senior leaders wrestling with a generation that they are realizing they don't totally understand or relate to anymore, whether it's because of the mental health issues that they're facing that is just off the charts and, and different really than it's ever been before, or whether it's this awareness of social issues that because of our mass awareness with social media, we know what's happening all over the globe all the time at this point, or, or even if it's just the cultural narrative that we live in today, we have a generation that, that is emerging Gen Z. And they're not even just the kids in our society anymore. They're not even just the high schoolers hanging out in our, in our ministries. These are adults who are raising up into leadership. And so this mm-hmm. talk is all about, man, how can, how can senior leaders really address the fact that Gen Z is starting to lead in our world. Mm-hmm. And I try to identify a couple things that we can do as leaders to create ministries that are more engaging to Gen Z. And Hannah, what are some of those things? What can the church and church leadership do better to encourage Gen Z? And I think specifically encourage Gen Zers who are struggling with mental health. Sure. You know, Personally, I've, I've had, um, what I consider the privilege of walking with a lot of next gen leaders who are wrestling with, with mental health issues. And I think in some capacity, I mean, we all have to realize and own the fact that we have some, some deep things that we need help with. I, I think first and foremost, every, every person needs a counselor. I'm, I'm grateful that I have a, a counselor in my life. Um, but I think, you know, obviously, in in addition to that, um, in addition to encouraging the next gen in our church to seek actual real help when it comes to counselors, um, when it comes to doctors, um, in general, what we find is a generation that is hungry for something more than an event, um, a, a generation searching for something more than a fun hangout. And what we've seen is that 
you know, there's a lot of that being offered in other places in the world now, right? Like community and belonging are very common topics outside of the church now. And so that's not, that doesn't set the church apart maybe the way it did before. And so if your church is saying, hey, we have events that will help you belong and, and find community, that's great. But they're also finding that from, you know, their their apartment buildings. They're finding that in their universities. They're, they're finding that in other kind of places outside the church. The thing that I believe can set the church apart and really engage the next generation is simply offering the same thing to the next generation that we see Jesus doing 2,000 years ago when he was recruiting his team of world changers. I mean, I talk about this more in the talk, but what we see is that Jesus started the church with with young people. Like Jesus started the church with the next generation of his day. And in the talk, we kind of dive into the invitation he used to engage the next generation into the church and to actually create what is now known as, as the local church. Um, and we can adopt a couple of those things. I'll just, I'll just quickly um, breeze mm-hmm. over them. But number one, I identify is that, you know, the next generation, they're looking for a place where they can be empowered to rebuild the ruptured parts of our world. And they're looking for a family to fight alongside. So those are kind of the two elements that we dive into in the talk. Oh, that's great. Hannah, what is, as you have this passion for the next generation, what are things that you hear older generations say about younger, the younger generation that just drive you up a wall? <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting because in some ways, Gen Z and, and millennials, like we fit into the stereotypes that we have, right? Like the stereotypes <laughs> are there for a reason. And at the same time, I also believe that when we speak, um, you know, words of life and words of challenge over people, they rise to the occasion. And so what I really identify in Gen Z is that a lot of people are, are assuming that Gen Z are, is really only talk and no game. But what if we really look at, at Gen Z, and the work they're doing, I mean, Gen Z, they, they won't wait for anybody. Like they're going to go out and they're going to start and they're going to do. Um, however, they're going to do it with or without you. And so something I get really frustrated at is when pastors say, yeah, we want to engage Gen Z in our church and ministries. But whenever Gen Z comes to them with a new idea of how to engage the next generation in their church or ministry, the pastor thinks that they're smarter, they're wiser, that just Gen Z is too naive. They don't know enough yet. They just don't know that it's not going to work. Right. And so I would say for, for senior leaders, you know, be, be aware that Gen Z might not have the same amount of ministry experience or degrees as you. However, if you want to reach them, they are representing the people that you want to reach. And so there is part of them that you have to listen to and engage with and give them the reins. Like they will, they will go. They don't need your permission. They don't need your approval. But if you empower them, they will then feel like they have a safe place and they will then be able to turn to you for wisdom. And how powerful would it be if we actually had a local church in America and even around the world where senior leaders' wisdom was paired with the energy and the passion of Gen Z? I think that would truly change the world. Mm, that's so awesome, Hannah. Hannah, can you briefly tell us about um, Generation Distinct and your ministry there? Absolutely. This is really the heartbeat of what we do is we want to see the next generation empowered to go out and change the world um, and really take that passion and pair it with some strategy so we can see action um, really come from their life. 
And Barna has been doing so many studies recently about Gen Z. And what they're finding is that in many ways, Gen Z is very skeptical to the church. And only about one third of Gen Z would actually say their church has equipped them to fight injustice and become aware of their passion. Only one third. And so we're wondering what's happening with the other two thirds, right? And so as we are on a mission to really equip those next gen leaders and to partner with the church to offer it actually through church communities, through our church partnership model, where then the next generation can actually see their church, their local church as a place that unleashes their passion and that really equips them to fight injustice. And that in and of itself helps them be a place where they can have a community to rebuild the ruptured parts of our world and to find a family to fight alongside. Mm, Love that, Hannah. What an incredible ministry that you and your team are going after. Well, again, Hannah Gronowski Barnett is the founder and CEO of Generation Distinct. She's the author of Generation Distinct, Discover the Wrong You Were Born to Make Right. You can learn more about Hannah at hannahgronowski.com and generationdistinct.com. Be sure to check out her Lift 2021 message at 1160hope.com slash lift. Hannah, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Always an honor. Be sure to stick around. Next up, we're talking about Christian tourism, and uh, you're not going to want to miss that. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad to have you on this Thursday afternoon. So, um, Brian... Yes. Interesting story came out. Um, the the owner, the founder of the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, Ken Ham, announced that they are going to be building a Tower of Babel experience, which is really, really interesting. And for people who don't know necessarily what the Creation Museum is or the Ark Encounter is, we have a little bit of audio of the builder describing the experience for us. Let's listen to that. This ark that you see here is a direct representation of the biblical account of Noah and the flood. So what we've done here is we've taken the true dimensions of the Bible in Genesis and we've replicated a full-size ark. We've had hundreds of thousands of people come through here. It's got rave reviews. People are very excited about this. And the first deck is really an introduction to the ark. It's our shortest deck is just to get people oriented to the ark itself. The second deck is really where the story starts, and the first exhibit that everyone sees is an exhibit called the Pre-Flood World, Pre-Flood Society, which really sets up for the the guest, uh, why was the ark built in the first place? Okay, so I have never been, but I hear Mm -hmm. lots of people love the Ark Encounter, the Creation Museum. I'm sure there's a lot of people excited about the Tower of Babel. Have you been to any of these places, Brian? I have not. Now, I would I would suggest the Tower of Babel has a that's a kind of a negative story. <laughs> Definitely a negative story. It's interesting. I think it, the concept being what were the what could these things have looked like? And I think it's a uh, you know this idea of Christian tourism uh, is is kind of fascinating because they wouldn't be building the Tower of Babel thing if the Ark wasn't going great. And I know many people who have traveled to the Ark uh, exhibit. Who have gone to the Holy Land experience in yeah, Orlando? Who have yeah. uh, who have gone to the Creation Museum? And I think it's it's uh, uh, th- they're fine. Like it's a good thing. I don't think it's either more virtuous than going on vacation to the beach or less virtuous. You know what I mean? And so 
what I would suggest when it comes to something like the Creation Museum, I remember when it first came out and there being a whole like hubbub, it is kind of positing a very um, specific theology about creationism, right? And, yes. uh, you know, a very literal six days and all of that stuff. And so I do think it's important to, the same way we tell people read both sides of any topic you do, I think it's important to know that going in, that that they are taking the arc or also creation from a very uh, specific theological viewpoint that maybe yes. not everybody, all scholars agree with. So I think that's yeah. helpful. But beyond yeah. that, I think it's interesting, Aubrey, to go and, you know, take some of your vacation time, take your day off or uh, and some of your money and, and go see these things. Like, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's helpful. Like, oh, wow, this is what the art could have looked yeah. like. This is yeah. what, and, and I think, again, you're not doing this because it's more virtuous than going to Disney World or going to the beach or going to the yeah. Dells or whatever. But if this is the kind of thing, a uh, pun completely intended, if this is the kind of thing that floats your boat, then, you know. <laughs> <go ahead. laughs> that was uh, almost a dad joke right there, Brian. That was completely Ryan. a dad joke. Then I think it's great. I think it's great. What do you think about it as you read the story? I do yeah. I really fast do want to say the Tower of Babel. Bad story, but it, it's probably interesting to see what it may have looked like. I did read somewhere that it's probably not going to be a fully built tower because God ended thing. up destroying it. So I think it's going to be like a smashed building. So that'll be kind of interesting. You know, I I am actually I am appreciating hearing you talking because I I actually think I would love seeing the rebuild of the arc. I think that would probably be fascinating to walk through and just see the like size and scope of it. And especially if you can't afford necessarily to go like on an actual Holy Land trip to Israel, these are sort of. I don't know, another version of that that's local, more affordable. There is a part of me, and it may be what you just said, Brian, that because this is a specific take on creation, there's a little part of me that kind of goes, oh, I hope this is okay. Oh, is there anything Mm -hmm. weird about this? Oh, should we be spending money on these things? But I guess like you said, it's not less or more virtuous than, say, going on to a different museum, right? This one happens to be one that encourages our faith and maybe for people who aren't familiar with christianity this is a great way to introduce people to the stories in scripture and ultimately to jesus so there's some positive things to it certainly um do you you've been to israel before right brian I did just a life-changing summer. I went to the Wheaton and the Holy Lands program. You and I are both Wheaton grads. And that's yep. literally from Memorial Day to the 4th of July in Greece and then a month oh, wow. in Israel. Oh, uh, wow. And then like four days in Rome and around the area. It was unbelievable. So, yeah, I spent a good amount of time. That was the summer between my junior and senior year at Wheaton. And it was unbelievable. So, yeah, I have been to Israel. Wow. And then has, do you ever, like, would you ever take a group of church folks on some of these sort of quote unquote Christian tourist events? Oh gosh, I would take a group tomorrow to go to Israel. I, I would, I would love was, to do it that. It is a life change. And I understand I got to spend a lot of time there. It was part of a college program. But even if you had a week, 10 days, the overview of stuff, the way the Bible comes alive when you're in Israel. I can't wait till the uh, common good runs our tour someday, but you know. Uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But the, 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 um, just the picture of the Bible that you get when you're walking where Jesus walked, when you're mm. walking where these old test, you know, they point out this valley and they're like, that's where most scholars believe David and Goliath occurred. And you're like, excuse me? <laughs> like, what really? Wow. Like, right there? 
Uh, wow. It really causes the Bible to come alive, and it really causes you to come face to face with your faith, to mm. be where it all happened is mm. life changing. But also, you know, I've been on, I know a lot of people kind of bag on these sums, but I've been on a lot of trips, um, you know, uh, on mission trips, right? With youth, yeah. uh, high school students, but also I ran, uh, I went on a trip to Rwanda with an organization that yeah, we uh, right. partner with. Uh, and those are life changing as well. So I, I think there is something to be said about, uh, again, I'm a huge fan of taking my vacation time to Disney World or yes. to the beach the or beach, to right. the Dells or whatever else. But having some times in your life where you do kind of go to and experience some of these things really does expand your worldview, expand your mind and expands your faith. So uh, what do you think? Uh, have you ever gone on a trip where you're like, OK, this is like really kind of helped me understand God more uh, more deeply? I mean, I would say, you know, again, I haven't done much of this, like these quote unquote, like Christian museums. Um, but I, we did spend a year in Zambia That's and right. I, I think our year there certainly opened my eyes to what God is doing in the world to the, I mean, God's manifold glory. Just when you, part of it is in Zambia, you know, there's, we, we, lived far away from Victoria Falls, but we were able to go there a couple times. And I mean, the creation itself of Victoria Falls is so stunning. And the, the wildlife is so stunning that you're just like, wow, God, you are so creative. You're so amazing. And then just being in Zambia, learning from the Zambian people, being able to worship side by side with our brothers and sisters from across the globe for a year, you know, there's, it's life altering, right? right? It's life altering right. living in another country anyway, just because you like butt up against so many kind of crazy things, but it's life altering to do it specifically when you're there to learn from Christians and see how Christians around the world give their lives for Christ. It's, it's, there's nothing like it. It's really, really powerful. I, I agree with that. And so I'd encourage people, whether you get the opportunity to go to Israel or whether it's something more local and simple as, you know, you can even go local and go to the Wheaton College Billy Graham Museum. I love the Billy Graham be, Museum. Oh, yeah. okay. Like, I don't think it has to be the other side of the world or even going down to the Ark. But when you get these chances, uh, I take advantage of them because there's, you know, g- good museum or going uh, to a new place, even out into the mountains can really expand our view of God. I think super helpful. Super helpful. Well, that's a good encouraging word for all of us, Brian. Uh, coming up next, we have a powerful, powerful story about a dad and husband who's also a double amputee and how he says amputation gave him his life back. It's really interesting. We're going to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Thursday evening. I am Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are thrilled that you've been with us throughout the day. Uh, Brian, there was a incredibly interesting, powerful story on goodmorningamerica.com about a father, a husband, a man um, who has a disease that was impacting his feet and ended up deciding alongside his doctor um, to amputate his feet. And he says that that amputation, although obviously painful and devastating in a lot of ways, gave him back his life. So I want us to listen to part of his story. In October 19, 
I had my right foot uh, amputated. And uh, the six first weeks after the amputation was really, really painful. Uh, but now I realized that the right stump was better than the left foot. When I got my first prosthetic, and I started walking. <laughs> the problem wasn't my prosthetic on my stump, it was my left foot. I spoke to my uh, doctor. Uh, he uh, agreed to, uh, to amputate the uh, second leg in February 20. I slowly, slowly started to uh, get confidence uh, walking with my prosthetics. And I started to be able to do things I didn't do before. Uh, but mainly, uh, with my wheelchair, I could do most of the things. I could go out with friends, I could go shopping, I could uh, hang out with my kid, I could start doing sports. And that was a really good feeling. My, I wasn't in pain all the time. It's never too late to learn something new, regardless of what, uh, what limits you have. Uh, you have to work with them. I got my life back. Uh, being able to work with, with prosthetics is a big bonus. Uh, so I'm very, very happy with the results. Okay, so I don't know about you, but that was really, really powerful to me that this man mm -hmm. sacrificed. I mean, really, he sacrificed, obviously, parts of his body. Um, but because he wanted to stay present for his family and he wanted to... Um, be able to live his life. And there's, if you, if you go to goodmorningamerica.com and watch the video, it, you know, he's, he's skiing, he's dancing with his mm. wife, he's playing with his kids. And really, it seems like has a new lease on life that wasn't able to have when he was living all of, living through all of this pain in his feet. But certainly it feels like an extreme thing to decide I'm going to amputate my feet so that I can live a meaningful existence. What did you think when you heard this story? Yeah, it's, it's it shows the love of a dad, right? And That's he, it. he wants to be there for his kids mm -hmm. and he wants to have some normalcy. And it, what an unbelievable choice having to make, like to double amputate, to cut off basically below his knees, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. In order to like, is that more normal or is the pain and the this disease? It's called Viking's disease. Uh, it's a rare condition. They said where painful tumors grow on both your hands and your on hands and feet. Uh, it seemed to only affect his feet. But, um, you know, is that more normal? And it, what a we, what a terrible decision to have to make. But he's like, right. you know what? I want the most normal life I can have for my family. And then there's like the point, too, where it's like he made the decision it was done. And then what do you do? Do you like, uh, do you just kind of live in, um, you know, just sadness over mm -hmm. not having your feet anymore? Mm -hmm. But he's like, nope, I'm going to embrace my life as a double amputee. I'm going to go for it. We're going to, we're going to do this and away that he goes. So yeah. And inspire. I love how we try to end the show with some inspiration. This is truly uh, an inspirational story. Yeah, definitely an inspirational story. Again, his name is Alan Hellander, 30 years old. I think that's the part that was shocking to me. Brian is he's so young and um, to, you know, to be 30 faced with this decision is obviously something you don't want for anyone. But the fact that he chose uh, really what feels like quite a sacrifice in order to serve his family and love his family, I think there's a lot we can learn from it, like what it means to find joy and suffering, what it means to um 
to sac I mean, literally to sacrifice some of yourself for other people, like to serve his wife and his family better. Um, you know, f- obviously, we probably don't have a lot of listeners that are suffering from Vikings disease, but I know we have a lot out there that are hurting, maybe dealing with chronic pain, chronic illness, or maybe just dealing with, I don't know, life, the burdens of life, and it feels hard. What can we learn from this story, Brian? Yeah, life's not always fair. Right. Mm. Like he's a 30 year old guy with kids. What do you think he wants to do? Right. He wants to run around with his kids. Uh, he wants, of course, he sees everybody, you know, 99.9% of the people around him being able to do that. Yeah. And he can't. And so, you know, it's a reminder to all of us that, uh, that, that we're not promised. Uh, fair equity in life, right? Like yeah, yeah. my struggles and your struggles are going to be different. We are promised that there will be struggles, but they're not equal. They're not the same. Uh, and, and I would sure that the, he's probably had moments. I, we don't want to, you know, make this guy a saint. I'm sure, sure he's had sure. really, really, really hard moments, but there does come a point in your life where you go, you know what? I'll either be defined by my hardships or I'll be defined by kind of how I deal with my hardships. And uh, he's being defined by how he deals with his hardship. It, this beautiful picture of him just holding his kids oh, I know. and smiling. I mean, I do. I do, Aubrey. I think that uh, life is going to be hard. Like we can fight that or mm. we don't, but life is yeah. going to be hard. And so when it is hard, uh, how are we going to react? And and this guy said, you know what? I'm going to react by just kind of embracing my new reality. And, mm-hmm. and that's the inspirational part of this that I really appreciate. I Yeah, I do too. And I also think there's, there's something about, there's uh, images. Again, if you go to goodmorningamerica.com, there's images of him um, with his prosthetic legs on learning to walk. And I mean, you just see this, you see the strength, like in the midst of something really, really difficult, you see the strength and the determination to uh, keep going, to find joy, to work through the pain and um, both the physical pain and the emotional pain so that you can be present. And I, you know, I, again, like you said, life is hard. <laughs> there is no person untouched by some type of suffering, whether they're walking through it or they know someone else walking through it. And yet we can face suffering with, a, um, you know, not in a like delusional way, certainly, but we can face it, I think, with a posture of acceptance mm. and asking God, okay, God, what is your invitation in this suffering? Like, how do you want me to respond? What do you want me to learn? How can I move forward in a way that, um, you know, leads to flourishing or your suffering can lead you down a really dark path. I know you and I have both walked through hard times where you you really do. It's either like I'm going to cling to God and I'm going to experience what he has for me in this this dark valley or I'm just going to walk away and kind of give up on life. And I, I do think this story is inspiring. Like Brian said, we like to bring you inspiring, encouraging stories at the end of the show. And this one especially I don't know. There's just something really, there's something really moving about this dad's love for his family, love for his kids that made him make this choice to keep going in the middle of something really, really hard. So we hope that encourages you today Mm -hmm. as you go out on this Thursday evening that if you're suffering or walking with someone who is that somehow you can find strength and joy Absolutely. In the middle of this, in the middle of this hard season. Well, we're so grateful that you've been with us today on 
the common good. Uh, please come back tomorrow. We'll be back here from 4 to 6 p.m. And as we've said before, after tomorrow, uh, Brian's headed out of town. I'm headed to grad school. So we've got some great best of shows for you next week. You are not going to want to miss those. But again, join us tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. <laughs>